Well, good morning. good morning. It's good to have you here. God's story of marriage. I don't think I have to uh, probably convince anybody in here that our marriages can struggle. I want to show you a, a picture. I'm not going to really comment on it. I'm just going to show you the picture. I'm not saying who is what. Okay, it's not my purpose, <laughs> although I'd love to. But anyway, um, does your marriage ever feel that way? Do your relationships ever feel that way? Here's a woman that's kind of had it. She says, I guess our problem with communication stems from our mixed marriage. I'm right, and he's male. Okay. <laughs> couple more, and then really I'll get off the jokes. Somebody has made some um, rather cynical statements about marriage. Here are a couple of them. Marriage is like a bath, not so hot after you've been in it for a while. Another one, marriage is like a violin. When the music stops, the strings are still attached. A man may be a fool and not know it, but not if he's married. I'm just reading. I'm just reading, okay? A husband is someone who stands by you in troubles you would never have had if you hadn't married him in the first place. Marriage isn't just a word. It's a sentence. Marriage is the most expensive way of discovering your faults. And lastly... The best marriage is between a deaf husband and a blind wife. That's awful, isn't it? Hey, Finkbinder, what are you doing? Okay. What I'm saying is we laugh at those things, and the reason we laugh is because of the reality that undergirds them. Isn't that true? If I, um, if I told you I want to make a movie, from a book. And, and, and I read in this book, it, it, it's, it's a, it's, you know, and you're going to have to give a rating to this movie. This particular book tells about domestic violence, including verbal abuse, physical abuse, sexual abuse, including rape and incest, and murder. There's fornication, adultery, polygamy, and drunkenness all the way through it. There's lying, deception, and hatred, all within the family context. What rating would you give that? We, we're going to turn that into a movie. What rating would you give it? At, at its very best, an R, right? Perhaps it would blend into some other things too. All I just read for you is a list of things that we find in Genesis 4 to 50. I didn't even go outside of Genesis. Genesis chapter 4 to 50, all those things you can read in that passage. So here's the question. In light of the fact last week we said about the way things were, right, in light of creation, God made, made marriage to be this beautiful union of intimacy under the lordship of Christ, to further God's kingdom purposes. Great stuff, right? So what happened? 
What happened is we happened in the person of Adam and Eve. So I want to go back and look at Genesis chapter 3. Let's kind of work through it. And, and I was telling Tim and James before the service, th- this week I was doing some, some more work in that passage. There is, honestly, I could talk to you for two hours on this chapter. I won't, I won't. I'll keep it to about 30 minutes. But it is just packed with so many things that give perspective to where we find ourselves today. So I know you know Genesis 3. You've heard it preached on and taught and that kind of thing. I want to work through it. And if you're married, I want you to think specifically about your relationship with your mate. If you're not, I want you to think about your other close relationships, okay? So there's no wiggle room. Nobody gets out. Nobody gets out of this one, right? We, we all kind of walk through it together. But how did we get into this mess? How did we get to see all the stuff in Genesis 4 to 50 when Genesis 1 and 2 is so good? Genesis 3. The Bible starts out by saying this. Um, you don't have to use it, I'm fine, but you have it to take home with you. There is a little handout in the bulletin, but you can just take that home with you when you're done and it helps you to remember stuff, so you don't have to write stuff down. It's, most of it's all right there. The Bible starts out by saying this. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals that the Lord God had made. Now, folks, I, I want you to think about this. I, I spent a fair amount of time just wrestling and reflecting on this this week, reading commentaries and different things. And, and it struck me. Shuri and I were talking about it yesterday. That when it says that about the serpent, it's not being said in a negative way. Because that expression is used elsewhere about a serpent. You know Matthew chapter 10? The Bible says when you go out, I want you to be as gentle as doves, but I want you to be what? As wise as serpents. It's the same language. It's the same term. It's the same thing. And, and what, what is happening is, as you looked at creation, one of the things you would have noticed is that snake, that serpent, has this way of just kind of being at the right place at the right time and then all of a sudden appearing and disappearing like whatever. Just, you look and you say, shrewd. And doesn't it strike you as interesting that Satan would choose a creature like that to be shrewd in the way that he spoke to Eve. I mean, it's really quite brilliant, isn't it? Now, I've often wondered, when the serpent started speaking, wouldn't you go like, what? I I mean, you know, like, hey, hey there. Some of the the old Jews that lived between the Testaments argued that all the animals spoke. But there's no evidence of that in Scripture. I, I, I just think it kind of shows kind of the innocence of this couple that, you know, whatever, I guess God can do anything with whatever. And so when it started speaking, it wasn't an issue for her for whatever reason. I'm going to come back to what else I think is going on there in just a minute. And notice what Satan does. Satan uses that animal that often is viewed as being shrewd. And when he approaches Eve, he starts with a theological question. He doesn't come at it straight on and say like, hey, I want to destroy you and the human race. Does he? 
Oh, no. He just wants to ask a question. And he says, look, word's going around the garden. And I'm just here to kind of represent some of the thoughts here. So he says this. Did, did God really say, you must not eat from any tree in the garden? He's only asking a question. Eve, Eve, word is out that God doesn't want you to eat from any of those things. Folks, is that true? No, look at chapter 2, verse 16. Look at what it says. Let's go back to, to, to 2, I'm sorry, 2, uh, nine, or 9. The Lord God made all kinds of trees growing out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for the food. And in the middle of the, tr- uh, the garden, he put the tree of life and the knowledge of good and evil. Verse 16, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden. But you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. That's it. So when God talks to Adam and Eve, what he actually says is, it's all for you. And when you enjoy it, remember it comes from a good and gracious God. That's what he says. But that one tree, don't eat from it. Because if you do, It will show your disobedience and you will come to experience evil and good in a way that you never wanted to. Don't eat from it. And the devil turns that whole thing on its head and says, you know, God is really hard. He doesn't want you to eat from anything, does he? Do you see what he's doing? It's it's subtle. It's, It's casting doubt. But doesn't he do that with you? with this with all of us. Man, God's kind of hard. Why didn't he heal that person? Why are you going through this financial difficulty? What kinds of stuff? He, he just, world. I just had a question for you. Why, why, why? What happens all the time, folks. His strategy continues with us. Eve responds back. The woman said to the serpent, well, no, no, you may eat from the trees of the garden, but God said you must not eat from the, from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. She adds just a, a little bit even to that, which probably means she's hearing some of the things that Satan is saying. So Satan, who initially starts out with a question just to raise doubt now goes for the juggler explicitly, directly, and says this. Look at what he says. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. That's insidious, folks. He's pointing his finger and saying, God is not for you. And, 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 and I think I've maybe mentioned this elsewhere, but, but just it bears repeating, I think. There's something else that's really subtle in this passage. If you read through chapter 2 and chapter 3, every time Moses, the narrator, talks about God, he always calls God the same thing. The Lord God. Whenever the serpent talks about God, he only ever addresses him as God. You say, so what? It is a big what. Because the Lord reflects God's 
intimate love and concern for his people. And God talks about his majesty and transcendence. And God wants us to know he is both there and here, always with us. But Satan wants you to know, at best, he's only there. He's not here concerned about you. Do you see? I mean, it's subtle all the way through. He asks questions, and then he comes out directly. And in the midst of it, his message is clear. He denies the goodness of God. He despises the sovereignty of God. And he dismisses the justice of God. If you track with your own temptation, nothing's changed. You know how often in my life I say to myself, I turn the language of want into the language of need. Is that easy to do? Man, I, I need that new cell phone. I mean, mine does an awful lot, but that one would be even clearer. I, you know what I'm saying? I mean, we live in a world where our wants are called our needs, and that's exactly what it is here. He says, look, God is keeping something from you which you desperately need. So he says God is not good. And folks, if you ever buy into the lie, you're in trouble. I've met too many men who would tell you that the reason they read pornography is because their wife, they need it because their wife is not enough. Is that true? That's absolutely not true, but that's what they'll tell you. And I've also known women, because they don't get the affection they want in the home, that will say, I need the arms of another man to care for me. And so I'm leaving him and I'm going somewhere else. Do you see what just happened? The, the desires of a heart, the frustrations, all that stuff, I get it. Now becomes need, and I will go and get it, and if God's in the way, I'll push him out for the journey. Denies the goodness of God. Despises the sovereignty of God. <laughs> Look, it's, while we're at it, Lord, um, why don't we let the world revolve around Thinkbinder instead of you? Do you struggle with that or is it just me? I mean, it, it, I know it theologically. I teach this stuff. God is the center of my life. But you know what I do? I can get done preaching or teaching on that and one hour later when I go home and there's a conflict, I step into the center, I push God out, and I just say, let's just all worship at the shrine of Doug for a little bit. And then life will be much more comfortable. Is it just me? And in those moments, I'm just saying I want to play God. I want to be God. The Bible calls it idolatry. Dismisses the justice of God. You know what happens we say this with young people all the time. They want to sow their wild oats and then they pray for a, for a crop failure. You know, you know I mean, I, I kind of get it, but, but, but th that's what happens. 
And we just say, look, I can do this and I think I'll really get away with it. And he just, he hits her with these lies. And in verse six, it works. Here's something fascinating. Look, think of this. I was thinking about this this week. And I don't want to throw so much at you, but this I found to be so cool. So cool. So, I mean, bad, tragic, but, but cool. Anyway, here we go. So, God is God. He puts humankind, man and woman, on this earth so that together they can procreate, right? Um, and I always tell people the Finkbeiners have really done their job in that area, six kids. But anyway, but anyway, okay. But, but to, to procreate and then to subdue the earth and rule over all the animals and do technology and all that kind of good stuff, right? So says those kinds of things. So you have God, you have this couple working together. The man is to be the leader, but they're partners. As they go together, they make a difference and they subdue this earth. In the temptation, everything gets turned on its head. Now you've got a creature, a serpent through which Satan is working, calling the shots. And Eve is having this discussion. Where is Adam? Right there. What, what is he saying? Nothing. She, he's talking to Eve. Adam, I don't know what he's doing. I just, what's he not saying? He's doing, hmm, hmm, doesn't say anything. Until she gives him the apple, then he eats it. Or whatever it is. We don't know if it's an apple. But, but you see what I'm saying? It's a total reversal. And now God is not to be glorified. You're not representing him over the animals. The animals are calling the shot, going to the woman, the man's saying nothing. And by the way, let's make God in our own image. Would you say that's a reversal? I would say like at every level it's a reversal. And so in verse 6, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and folks, there was nothing wrong with that. Look at chapter 2, verse 9. The language is almost identical. The Lord God made all kinds of trees growing out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. It's the same thing. The only difference was the third element. And also desirable for gaining wisdom. This happens in marriage. I like him, or if it's a guy, I like her, my, my mate. She's good to be around. But if I was with somebody else, I could get something else. So she's good to look at, desirable, good stuff. But I want more than just that. I want this. Folks, that happens all the time. And in our hearts, we have to struggle with that all the time, don't we? God in his goodness has given us mates. He knows exactly what we need. He's given us someone and he says, you know what? I want you to invest your entire life in that person. Yeah, but sometimes I look at it here and I find that she can and she... No, 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 no. You start doing that, you're playing Genesis 3 stuff. That's what you're doing. And you're attacking the goodness of God. But she attaches that. And because of the payoff, she's willing to disobey God. She took from the fruit. She also gave to her husband who was with her. And he ate. 
The eyes of them both were open. They realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings. Now, folks, look at chapter 2, verse 25. Adam and, his, Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. Are you telling me after they ate that fruit, they went like, holy mackerel, you don't have any clothes on. Like, I never realized you were naked before. Do you think that's what it's saying? <laughs> I mean, that's a, Really? Or did they see the nakedness differently now? In the nakedness of their bodies, the exposure of their bodies revealed the exposure and nakedness of their soul. And so the only way to kind of do it is sew fig leaves together, something, because we need to reflect the alienation we feel in our heart, we have to somehow reflect on our physical. And that's what they do. So this couple who had been so open with one another are now beginning to distance themselves from one another. I thought about this. If you track the serpent theme of the devil through the scriptures, you find some really interesting things. It just keeps bubbling up. And it doesn't end until the end of the book of Revelation when the Bible says, and God took Satan, that old serpent, and threw him in the lake of fire forever. It doesn't end till then, folks. It is, it is an ongoing, and his strategy doesn't change. He keeps doing it to us again and again and again. And he plunged the whole human race into sin. In, into sin. But he continues to use the same strategies against us, doesn't he? And so they cover up. Oh, I know what I was going to say. I kind of lost my train of thought. Satan is repeatedly called the liar and murderer all through the scripture. So at his very core, he's about separating. In the beginning, God is all about community, unity, love, and peace. Satan is all about breaking that all the time. So there's separation and division and pain and and warfare. Do you see what I'm saying? God's world is to be like this. Satan's world will deceive you to make it a fractured, broken world. And when there's alienation with God, there's always going to be alienation with one another. The only thing this couple unites in is hiding from God. It's the only thing they can, after this, it's one thing they do. Hey, let's go hide behind that tree. And you have to love God when you read this passage. What could God have done? He is God after all. He could have ended it all right there, right? He could have said, forget this whole creation thing. Like, I'll go do something on Mars. I don't mean, whatever. I mean, you know, I'm sure he wasn't thinking that one. but, But, you know, he could do whatever he wants. He's God. But instead, he pursues, he pursues lost, broken, alienated, undone people. And when he comes, he asks Several questions. Before he pronounces judgment, he poses questions. 
to get people to think. So look at verse 11. Oh, I'm sorry, verse, uh, verse, verse 9. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? Now, do you think that was for God's sake? I mean, do you think God was saying, hey, come on, this hide-and-go-seek thing isn't working very well. Like, where are you? I give up. I give. Really? He wasn't asking it for his sake. He was asking it for their sake. Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden. <laughs> do you ever do this with your children? When you, you ask questions, and every time they answer, they go deeper into the problem? <laughs> you know, I mean, they would have been really good just kind of mums the word, which is why sometimes with, by the time they're teenagers, honey, what happened? They don't say anything. Because they learn when they start saying things, it always creates a problem for them. So anyway, anyway, so where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Probably not the best response. Well, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? He's just, see, see what he's doing? He's just throwing out another question. Oh, you have this deep awareness of your alienation and distance and nakedness. Did you, did you eat from that tree? And I've often thought, wouldn't it be wonderful if we could rewrite um, verse 12? The man said, I am undone. I take full responsibility. Let her go free. Wouldn't that be nice, ladies? Yeah. Now, you can find a guy like that, marry him. Okay, anyway, but whatever, whatever, okay. Now, what does he do? He does what we all do. The man said, the woman you put here to be with me, she gave me some of the fruit from the tree and I ate. God, that woman, I, actually the one you made, remember? Remember the rib thing? Okay, you made her? She gave it to me. So, God is gracious. Starts with Adam. Now he's going to move down. Then the Lord God said to the woman, again, he poses a question. Uh, what is this that you have done? The woman said, well, the serpent deceived me and I ate. See, see she keeps kind of pushing this thing down. So apparently at this point, the serpent's no longer able to speak because all he's going to do is get cursed. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock. You will crawl on your belly. And then I'm going to come back to verse, verse 15 a little bit later. But he basically curses the snake. Do you remember in Genesis 1 I told you the two great blessings that God gave humanity was the ability to procreate and the ability to work and to subdue the earth. Do you know they're going to be the two areas in which mankind are judged? Procreation is a wonderful thing. But ladies, would you not say it's a little bit painful? Look. To the woman, he says, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. 
With painful labor, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Eve, every time you and all of your daughters give birth from here on out, you will remember that we live on this side of the garden. We are no longer there. Now, it is still life, isn't it? And, and, and I have to tell you this. Even in God's judgments, there's mercy. Because God didn't say, you know those blessings from Genesis chapter 1? They're gone, man. They're gone. No, 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 no. You will still procreate. I will still bless that enterprise. But you always remember you're on this side of the garden when you do. And what's he say to the guy? You're going to go out and you're going to find out we, what weeds are in a way that you never have before. And you will work the ground and you will get crops from it, but it will be far harder than it was ever supposed to be. And when it is, you remember that you're on this side of the garden. So there continues to be advancement in technology and all those kinds of things go on. But there's always these frustrations. There's the law of thermodynamics. There's all that stuff going on that brings us frustration in our endeavors. Endeavors are not bad. But they're never the way they were meant to be from the beginning. Do you see? Alienation from God, alienation from one another. And so maybe I could say this. It's, it's, it's in your notes here. I'm popping around a little bit. Um, when this couple covered themselves, I call that the great cover-up, and when Adam said, the woman that you gave me, she caused me to sin, I call that the blame shift. You don't have to just look at this in the relationship with your mates. You can look at this in relationship with your parents, your children, your friends, all kinds of things. But my tendency... And your tendency, because I am a chip off the old block. I am Adam's son. Why? Well, I'm now the son of God because of Christ. But I mean, I'm connected back to that guy. If you get too close, there's some things in my soul that I don't want you to see. So I'm going to kind of, I'm going to cover up. <laughs> you know? And, and so maybe you were driving to church today and you had one of the worst fights with your mates you can possibly imagine. You walk in the door and someone says, how you doing? And what do you say? Fine. Pray, praise the Lord. Fine. <laughs> you know what we're doing? I mean, you know, it's not just me, is it? I mean, we all do these things, right? And, and, but what I'm doing is I don't want you to get too close because I'm afraid what you're going to find. But if you break through and expose me and I'm caught, I'm going to blame shift. Yeah, yeah, but, but, but you weren't very nice the way you said that. What's that have to do with the issue? Yeah, but do you remember last week? What am I doing? You broke through, I got exposed, and I'm pointing everywhere. Well, my mom or my dad or my friend or you. See, these strategies are as old as sin itself, folks. We cover up. Somebody breaks through. We start pointing fingers. We, we, we just chips off the old block. I want to 
focus on one other issue here. And I think I have a slide on it that I'm hoping would, 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 will really help. Remember I told you that verse in verse 16? I don't know if I told you this, but it's, it's, it's challenging. The end of verse 16, when God is judging the woman, he says this. Your desire will be for your husband, and he, but he, I think it's better, but he will rule over you. You know what I think he's saying there? I think he's saying, Eve, not only will you feel pain in procreation, which is still a blessing, because you're giving birth to children. Children are wonderful things. But there will be this ongoing battle of the sexes. Your desire shall be to try to manipulate your husband, and his tendency will be to be a tyrant over you. Guys, husbands, fathers. You know what strikes me as really interesting in this passage? God's model is always loving male leadership, which means we are called by God to lead our family in such a way that we, I mean, Adam's problem was he went with Eve against God. Do you know what the best thing I can always do for my wife, Sherry? Always, always, always. Is when she says something, which is like virtually never that I can think of, but whatever. If she would say something that goes contrary to what God says, I always go with God rather than what she says. And when I do, it's the best thing for Sherry at the same time. Now, that doesn't mean I call rank like, hey, I want blue rather than green here, and I want my iced tea. That's not what male leadership is about at all. Male leadership is an ultimate responsibility to serve the ones that God has put under your care so they can become everything that God wants them to be. That's what leadership is all about. And male, loving male leadership, which gets violated, I find the same guy in the same chapter struggles with passive resignation and aggressive tyranny. In verse 6, when Satan is tempting Eve, Adam zips it, and doesn't do a blooming thing. That's passive resignation. But then in verse 16, but he'll have the tendency of being a tyrant over you, the same guy, the same guy can come home from work one day, and because things aren't the way he likes it, he says, I'm going to be watching, I was going to say the Philadelphia Eagles, but... Um, New York Giants, whatever, whoever, whatever team. Honey, I'm busy. And just kind of goes into his little back cave and does his thing by himself because he doesn't want to have any of the re- responsibility for what goes on around him in the home. And when his wife says, honey, we got to talk. Busy. That's passive resignation. But then he wants to eat and he comes out. He sees supper isn't ready yet and the kids are noisy. And he starts barking out orders. Hey, sit down, be quiet, get over here. Hey, woman, make my meal. I don't know, there's all kinds of things. That's a tyrant. Same guy, same day, can go from passive resignation to aggressive tyranny in minutes. And then I look at my own life. And I play those same games. Honey, you deal with it. <laughs> Passive resignation. Aggressive charity. We don't need to talk about this. God wants us to do this. Oh, don't blame God for that. Do you know what I'm saying? 
You start looking at what goes on in this chapter. We see ourselves everywhere. And the woman is called the loving, uh, the, uh, the female su- submission. And, and that doesn't mean, I don't, that my wife is not a doormat. And, and, and wife shouldn't be this domineering or kind of quiet controller. You know, ladies, we're all good at playing games for ourselves, aren't we? And, and God is for this middle area where Man and a woman, as partners hold hands, yes, the guy bears the ultimate responsibility for God before God for that home. Yes, he does. But together they make a difference in this world. And instead, we play the same games that Adam and Eve played. Same stuff. There's an old song. I don't know if you ever remember hearing it. I think Andy Williams sang it. Do you even know the name Andy Williams? In the younger generation, you have no idea what I'm talking about. Andy, who? I, I, sorry, whatever. I, but I was really young when I listened to Andy Williams. Okay, just, just let's, let's be really clear on that one. My mom must have been playing it in the house or something. Okay. But one of the songs he sings was Once Upon a Time. Once upon a time, the world was sweeter than we knew. Everything was ours, how happy we were then. But somehow, once upon a time, never comes again. And I've often wondered if Adam and Eve could have penned those words. So you say, well, Doug, you've really kind of ruined my Sunday. All you keep saying is, everybody is a rebel. That's true. I have been saying that. But this text leaves us with hope. And one of the reasons we know it has hope, even Adam has some hope, even though he's going to be kicked out of the garden. I've called her Eve, but this is the first time he names her Eve. You know what Eve means? Living. The whole chapter is about death separation, separation, final physical death, spiritual separation, it's everywhere. And, and Adam goes through all this, and when he, when he finds a God moving toward him, he has to at least say, look, there's going to be pain and work hard. And all. I'm going to, you're Eve, living. Isn't that amazing to you that he picks that up? And I would say there's several things that bubble up. When I read chapter 3, I find out that God protects us. In verse 22 and 23, if they would eat from the other tree, the tree of life, they would then have perpetuated in this state of degeneration and sin and no escape. It would just cycle down, 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 down. And so God takes them and puts them out of the garden so that they do not eat from that tree. Now that tree is going to come back in in the Bible later, but not yet. So he puts them out because he's protecting them. He provides for them. Remember the fig leaves? God says, no, I'm going to give you skins from animals. But if I cover you with skins from animals, what does that mean? Something died. And so God is already beginning to teach them 
death so that you might be covered. And any Jew reading this knows exactly where that's going. He's thinking about the whole sacrificial system. And any Christian reading that knows where that's going. That's going to Jesus. Do you see? But from the get-go, God, the God who pursues, who doesn't annihilate but gives hope, he, he protects them, he provides for them, and then he promises them a coming Messiah. Look at verse 15. In speaking to Satan, to the serpent, but to Satan, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. Satan hates you. The hordes of hell hate you. We can't see them. But they work all through our world system and they only want to wreak havoc so that people will move away from the true and living God and experience what God has never intended. That enmity runs all the way through the Bible. But then you have this last statement. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. I've never been bit by a snake. It's actually one of my fears. I don't like snakes, you know. I mean, so if I see a snake coming while I'm hiking, I go the other direction, okay? But often a, a snake would strike you on the heel, especially if you got sandals on in the ancient world, right? I mean, you know, it makes a lot of sense. And does it, does it not strike? I mean, that fruit, whatever it was, hadn't even rotted yet. And God is already talking about Jesus. You will bite his heel. And your venom will kill him. But it will not stop him. He will let his death occur. You do not ultimately even control that. And he will resurrect from the grave as King of kings and Lord of lords, and as Romans 16 says, he will crush the head of Satan. And we can't wait till we finally see at the end of the book of Revelation, all of that takes place in all of its fullness and glory. But this couple is not even out of the garden yet. And God has already told us about our hope in Jesus. So the point, although the world has fallen because of the sin of Adam, hope and glory awaits those who know Christ. Um, I was talking with Diana and Victor just a little bit before the service. And I, I, when I've spoken on this passage before, the, the, the term that I've used is that... Um, when you come out of chapter, the beginning of chapter 3, you feel like a pessimist. When you get to the end of chapter 3, you're a realist. But you're an optimistic realist because of the hope that God gives us in the future. <laughs> and we're going to find next week, when you come to the fullness of the gospel and what Jesus can do in our homes, you're not an optimistic realist you're a realistic optimist. 
See, God is moving us from one to the other as you begin reading here. I mean, everything is bleak. Adam sees enough because God has come and God is gracious and God is protected and God has promised. So he can say in faith, Eve, life. Even as they're going out of the garden. And yes, things are going to be terrible in many ways. But there's that thread. And it never stops, and it just keeps increasing, and we just learn more and more until we get to Jesus. That's why we're in this business. That's why you're here if you know Christ. You believe that, don't you? I believe that for your marriages. I tell you, in marital counseling, James could tell you this even more than me. I've heard every sin imaginable. I mean, a girl come in one time and say, I murdered somebody. And she, was, she struggled emotionally with some things. So I said, well, could you elaborate? You know. <laughs> she hadn't in that case. Um, we had to run it down and check it all out. But it was a little host of other issues. But, but you hear almost everything. Don't you, James? I mean, Christians come in and they just say, oh, man, I'm just so mad at her. We built this wall in a relationship and I, and I just, I want to throw her out the window. Will you just try? And then they're just going, blah. And you know, you're praying. As a counselor, you're going like, Lord, give me a lot of wisdom right now. Help me to probe, but not too much yet. Yeah, I mean, it really, it's in good counseling. I find, I tell couples when they come in and they're really at odds. I say, look, it is going to get worse before it gets better. So just know if you're signing up, it's going to get ugly before it starts looking better. But I have seen God again and again and again. When couples come in and they're normally talking to me early on, they don't even look at each other. It's like I'm a ref. She'll look at me. Well, he did. Well, thank you. Um, Bill, would you like to? And I'm not thinking of you if you're Bill, but Tom or whatever. Would, would, would you like to, to respond to that? Well, yeah. And then he, he talks. They don't look at each other at all. They're always looking at me trying to build the case like he's a jerk and she's an idiot and back and forth, back and forth. About four, five, six weeks, Lord willing, maybe eight or ten, they begin talking to each other. And at the point at which they're able to work through their problems biblically and all I'm doing is just kind of watching, I say, you know what? Just keep doing that on your own. I'm leaving. (laughs) I mean, that really, for, for counseling, I'm looking from this to that, working it through biblically, and I'm out of here. <laughs> you know, that's probably simplistic, James. You could probably say it differently than that. But that, in my simple mind, that's kind of how I view it. But I want you to know this. When couples come in and they share these problems and they think, you're going to really feel bad at me, Doug, when I say this. I'm going to say, no, I won't, because we're all a chip off the old block. And I know the depth of my own sinfulness. But the only reason I'm doing this right now is not because confession is good for the soul. Because confession can lead to repentance. And God has come to transform those individuals that repent and believe in him. And it's the gospel. And that's why we're here, folks. So we struggle in my marriage. You say, I struggle in my marriage. Like, I get that. There's hope. There's hope because what Christ has done. So next week, 
We want to move from the way things were to the way things are to the way things can be and see what God has said. Father, thank you for being so clear and graphic and explaining to us how we got into the mess we're in and frankly, why we continue to perpetuate that mess. But most of all, Lord, thank you that when we were hiding from you and running from you and trying to work it out on our own, you sought us. Yes, there's judgment, but there's always hope and mercy for those who repent. And Father, for that, we are ever grateful. In Christ's name I pray, amen.